Hey friends, I am so glad you're here. I'm your host, Erin Cusio, and this is Room for Lovely. Each week, we'll bring you incredible guests with relatable stories and encouraging wisdom who remind us to look for the loveliness in every single day. Because while not all of life is lovely, there is room for loveliness in every single season. I wonder if you've ever felt like maybe your life was headed for rock bottom. Maybe you've looked at the ashes of your life and felt certain that God could never build anything beautiful from the mess. Maybe you've shied away from his calling in shame because surely, surely there was someone who is more qualified than you. Because if people really knew where you came from, if people really knew your past, there was no way God could use someone like you, right? Wrong. Today, my guest is Dustin Boudreau. I went to high school with Dustin, and his sister and I were good friends. He reminded me before the interview that I was his cheerleader, secret pal, which meant that each week I put together fun surprises and snacks to give him before each football game. And all the while, I had no idea all that Dustin was truly struggling with. I had no idea the dark road he was walking down, and I never could have imagined where he would end up today. Dustin's story is one of hope, redemption, and the transformation power of a God that loves us beyond belief. Welcome, Dustin. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I am, I feel a little bit like this is a blast from the past, um, but I'm so excited to get to talk to you. If you would take just a minute and introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, my name is Dustin Boudreaux, and I know Aaron because we uh, went to the same high school, but I don't think I've talked to you in probably 20, 25 years. So yeah, it's been a while. (laughs) Yeah. I live in Natchez, Louisiana now uh, for work. I'm an electrician and I work in paper mills, uh, traveling, doing things like that for ministry. uh, Before COVID, I was traveling around a lot of different countries, but now I kind of focus in my city doing inner city missions. So Um, I want to jump into all of that a little bit later, but I want to start by kind of taking us back to the beginning of where I remember you, and that was longer even than 20 or 25 years ago because you guys moved into our neighborhood when we were just kids. Um, Your dad had passed away. My dad passed away whenever we were younger, and your mom moved back to, I guess, her hometown with the three of you guys. And that's sort of my first memory of the Boudreaux clan. So tell me a little bit about what you remember moving back to Iota, where we're from, because I would venture to say that was maybe a little bit of an adjustment for you guys having lost your dad and then moving to a different place than what you were familiar with. Yeah, very much so. I was born in Crowley, Louisiana, which is right outside of Iota. I think at the age of three, we moved to, it's called Port Salford. It's about 30 minutes south of New Orleans. And the culture there, let's just say, was a lot different than Iota. I could, I could remember in, in my school, I probably, we probably had 10 white people in the school, you know, and, and I was one of them. Then I go to Iota and it was the complete opposite. So I show up, I mean, it was just a culture shock, you know. And the reason why we did move to Iota, be closer to my mom's family, because my dad did pass away. And so that's where, and I actually forgot that we lived in the same neighborhood, so. I don't know if this is a fair assessment, but I would say that there were three of you, um, you, a younger brother and a younger sister, and I was really good friends with your sister. And so I guess that probably most of my interactions happened because of hanging out with Megan. But as I look back and remember, I would say that Megan and Quentin, your younger brother, were 
loud, they were boisterous, they were outgoing, but I remember you almost as being hard, just a very hard exterior. Would you say that that's a fair assessment of what you kind of felt like back in the day? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I was, I felt so out of place, first off, moving to Iota. And when you don't have a dad, there, there's a big question mark in your heart. Like, who am I? You know what I mean? So you become a poser. And so what I did, I just became hard and I would, I wouldn't say a bully, but I was, I would project just being mean, you know? And so, yes, you're right. I, that's interesting that you would describe yourself almost as being a bully because I never felt like you were mean to anyone, but just, um, definitely hard, a hard exterior. But as you got a little bit older, things began to shift even more for you. And I don't know really at what point in your life things changed, but I think you shifted a little bit from maybe the pain of losing your dad, the hard exterior that you had put up as protection to a little bit more of a spirit of rebellion. Can you dig into that a little bit and how that might have shifted for you? Sure. <clears throat> a lot of people go the wrong way because influences in their life, but I think that I was the bad influence in other people's lives. Mm. As you know, statistics right now, I think it's up to 94% of everybody in prison is there because they don't have a dad. And so, yeah, it's, so it's, and you don't want to blame it on that. My mom did the best she could. She took me to church when I was younger. I don't remember much of it, but she tried the best she could. But I just was, I mean, I was wild. I was, <laughs> I did whatever I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. And so most of my uh, high school life was in rebellion, just doing whatever I wanted to do. And then I found a way through drugs at age, I think I probably started at 14 wow. to hide, hide the pain, put a mask on just you know, and so that's kind of what I turned to at age of 14. It got really bad at probably 16 and 17, but it started my journey on drugs at age 14. I, I can't wrap my brain around that being 14, 15, 16 years old, because you were a really successful football player. You came to school. I mean, to look at you, I, I would have described you as hard. Yes, but I would not have described you as being strung out on drugs or anything like that. So how were you able to navigate the balance of kind of looking like you had it all together. I mean, you were successful athletically and all of these things, but also living this other life of kind of destroying your life in the process. Yeah. First off, very carefully. <laughs> it was, it was a process by 16. It sort it started to show a little bit by, by my junior and senior year. I mean, if you, if you knew, if you was around people on drugs and knew about drugs, you knew that I was on them. I just didn't care as much anymore. I mean, even, even at football practice, because uh, my mom had asked the coach, like, hey, why didn't Dustin, why didn't you play him in this or do this, you know, and what they would say was, it's like, Miss Kate, we'd be out practicing, he'd be over there kicking field goals by himself, so I just, by, by that time, I just didn't care, I really caught up, I, I guess you could say about 18 is when it really started to catch up with me. So at its worst, what did that look like for you? What did your life look like when you really felt like maybe it was at rock bottom? I can remember, I started doing all kind of different drugs. And I can remember the first time I knew I was addicted. It was a very scary feeling. I remember I, I was doing a whole bunch of just pain pills, different stuff like that. I remember I quit. I tried to stop and I felt like I had the flu. But come, come to find out later, it was, it was detox. And I just kept going and kept going doing it. And I just remember like the veil was lifted from my eyes. And I was like, I can't quit doing this. And, and it, it went to the place where I would steal from anybody. I would do whatever I needed to do. I would kick people's doors in to get it. You know, uh, whatever I needed to do, I would feel so bad. I would run, run 104 fever from the detox. And so whatever I needed to do to do it, I mean, to get it, I would do it. I made uh, runs to Mexico, me and friends of mine to get stuff, been, been arrested over there. <laughs> Luckily, you paid $500 to get out or I'd still be there. But 
and and I was raised better than that. I mean, you know, my mom, she, she was a Christian, you know, I've never seen her really cuss, never seen her really do anything really. And, and I can remember at night after I would get home from doing whatever I needed to do to get it, I would cry. You know, I would just cry. I'd be like, man, what am I doing? I would steal from my mom. I'd steal from my friends. I'd do whatever I needed to do. I would sell drugs and I just, it would just destroy me inside. Like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? But I was at a place where, where I just could not stop. And at the age of probably 2021 is when, when, although my mom took me to church, I would say that I didn't believe in God, but deep down, I really did. Uh, looking back now, I really did. I just didn't know what to do. Uh, but I can remember at the age of 20, uh, the Lord, and I'll go into that if you want, whenever you want about the encounters I had that brought me to Jesus, because a lot of people was praying for me. So, but I was at a place where, man, I, I wanted to die. I never, I never got to the place where I want to kill myself, but I wanted to die. In those moments of highs and lows, very, very, um, and I don't mean high like good, but high like strung out on drugs. And then the lows of needing that next fix, needing something to try to take the pain away again. Was there ever any clarity where you were able to put your finger on, I'm doing this because I'm doing this because of the pain that I don't have a father, or I'm doing this because of maybe the shame that now I'm on this and I just have to keep staying on it. Did you ever have those moments in riding those highs and lows? Never once did I think that didn't even cross my radar. Cause I can remember at five or six years old, I take a, a Coke bottle with a little bit of Coke in a two liter. And I would just inhale it till I, I felt high. Probably it just was a lack of oxygen, but as far as I can remember, I just liked the feeling. I would drink cough syrup in, in eighth grade, just like the feeling. So I, I never equated why I was getting high to that till after the fact and realized like, oh, that's why I was doing that. Well, I do want to go into the more hope-filled part of the story, which is those encounters with God, because I think it is really important to understand that everything that you came from, God met you right where you were, and you've totally changed your life around. But what sorts of encounters did you have that kind of brought you out of that really scary, dark place and began to kind of make you tiptoe towards the light? Okay, here we go. <laughs> so I will say... Uh... I'd gotten to a place and go along with the question you asked earlier, where I was, I was smoking crack cocaine. I was doing meth. I mean, whatever drug was available, I was doing, I would go times where I wouldn't bathe for a week or sleep for a week at a time. Then I would come get one day of sleep at my house, at my mom's house. Then I would do another week. So it was just, I was down to probably 120 pounds. It was just, everything was just horrible. So much darkness. But I can remember, I was like, you know what? One day I was like, I'm, I'm just not going to get high today. And I can remember the whole day I wasn't high and I was, as I'm laying in bed, all of a sudden the ceiling disappears. I go into whether it's an open vision or a trance, I'm not really sure. And I could see, I saw the clouds rolling. And I remember what I knew at the time was an angel blowing a horn. Uh, and, and I can remember, I didn't remember much about God, but I remember my mom telling me that Jesus is coming back for his church one day. <laughs> and if I'm not his, I'm going to hell. I always had a fear at after this, I had a fear of going to hell. Even before that, I said I didn't believe in God, but I had a fear of going to hell. And I can remember thinking, oh no, she wasn't lying. I'm going to hell. So, but all of a sudden, I, I couldn't explain the time, but something, it felt like just something came and, and just clothed me. And I began to raise up out of my bed. I wasn't floating like my lower body, but just coming out of my bed with my hands raised in air. And I felt the best feeling I could ever imagine. And I just wept for 10 minutes, just sat there with my hands in the air like this, just weeping, weeping, weeping. Every burden is just lifted, you know? And after about 10 minutes, uh, that encounter ended, feeling lifted, went to sleep, woke up the next day and got high again. <laughs> so 
but from that moment I was thinking I was like okay some like I think this God thing is is real fast forward uh, I don't know how much time later I'm in a vehicle with two of my friends in the front seat I'm in the back seat and we're all get, we all just getting high and all of a sudden I hear beating on the back window do, 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 do. and so I turn around and I look and it was an angel <laughs> the angel was beating on the, the window of the, the back of the uh, vehicle and it told me said don't do that again don't hit that again I'm telling you put that down now don't do it again and I can remember laughing like because you know I, and I turn around my friends like hey man uh this angel told me don't hit this no more which they took it from me because they thought I was hallucinating which probably saved my life now I'm now I'm really thinking like oh man what is going on uh now you would think that them two encounters would just do something in me where I'm like all right God but it didn't it was it was a long process I began to sell drugs and, and continually doing drugs just everybody knew I was on it too uh and like you said earlier I, I was pretty good in sports good in football good in baseball so they didn't want to bust me because who I was they didn't want to arrest me so a friend of mine whose dad was a police officer came to me said hey man you're a uh, top 10 in, in the parish for drugs now and they didn't want to bust you because you who you are who you are but let's get to that place where you need to you know and you're still in high school at this point no no I'm, I'm graduating now <clears throat> yeah I'm out of high school gotcha okay so that happened then you and my sister was going going to the church in Crowley uh, and it had a revival there. A guy named was Jerry. He came in on a motorcycle. Uh, anyway, my sister was, kept trying to get me to go to this revival. And I was like, no, I'm not going to this revival. So anyway, I was uh, that day I went to the gym and I was working. I was trying to gain a little bit of weight. And a guy walked up to me and said, hey, he says, you got some pretty big arms, man. You know, and we just talked a little bit. He says, my name is G uh, Reverend Jerry. I got a, a service tonight at, at the church tonight. Will you come? I was like, yeah, I'll go. But I wasn't intending to go. So it got, got about around time to go and I remember thinking like man I don't want to lie to the preacher I'm gonna go so what I did I ate a bit a whole, I ate a whole bunch of fentanyl and then I went to went to the service and about 10-15 minutes in I'm like hey this is nasty it just felt good so I go sit in the car and this service is lasting forever so I'm sitting in the car I'm like what is going on all of a sudden my high goes away and I just started feeling bad I'm like what is going on this church service needs to be over what's going on in there so I walk walk inside and I walk inside right as he's doing an altar call, which I didn't know what it was at the time. And all of a sudden I just continued to walk past my chair mm. all the way to the front. Like I wasn't even it's like, what am I doing? And they prayed for me and I had an encounter with God that night. And for about four days after that, I can remember, like I felt different. I tell Megan, I said, man, I, I'm around my friends and I'm still drinking and doing all that. I said, I just don't feel right doing it. And after about, I don't know, a week or so that went away, but I, God was just drawing me in. So fast forward uh, to my friend who told me top 10 in the parish. So I end up moving to Colorado, but we all know when you, the problem, the problem goes with you. I'm there. And this is where it really starts to get bad. Just, just a low point. One night I mixed, it's actually during the day. I mixed a whole bunch of different types of drugs. I can remember my heart start to feel really weird. I'm like, what's going on? It's just beating crazy. And you know, then it stopped for a while. And I remember hitting it and it would start up again. At least that's what it felt like. It felt like when I hit it. Then after about three times, everything just stopped. My heart stopped. My breathing stopped. My eyes faded to black. And I remember I was like, this is it. I don't, I'm not going to say I was in hell, but I remember I was just in a very dark place. I was like, like, oh no, this is it. And I remember thinking like, same thing. Oh no, I'm going to hell. And my mom's going to fuck, you know, like I just, what she, what she's going to think when she hears about this. And all of a sudden I hear a voice and the voice says, this is it. And I knew exactly who it was and it was God. And I knew what he meant. Either it's my time to give her my life or my time to die. 
So I remember saying, if you, if you let me live, I'll give you everything. And it's, and it was like, I just came out of water. It's like, I woke up like, <gasps> from, from there, I, I didn't know what to do. And I couldn't quit doing drugs. And I can remember I'd be high on meth and I'm flipping through the channels and TBN would be on and the power of God would hit me <laughs> and my hand would just go in the air and I would just would pray. And I was like, I don't know what's going on, but this feels good. I didn't have terminology for it yet. And I was in Colorado, so I had the church right up the road from my house. And I, I went one day and I go in and this lady's singing, the power God hits me again. Of course, I didn't know what it was at the time. And I'm just crying. I'm so embarrassed. I run out of church. And, and so I'm just going on this journey. And, and I knew I was like, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to, I'm about to die. So I called my sister. I said, look, I said, if I don't leave, I'm going to die. I don't know what to do. And so I had a warrant out for my rest of the time in Colorado. But at that time I was reading my Bible. I even started tithing before I got saved. I just like, whatever the Bible says, I'm just going to do it. Wow. And so I don't know, I, I didn't know much about Jesus or Borny. I didn't know any of that, but I was like, I made my mind up. I'm going to do this thing. So I go talk to him at the police station. And I'm saying, look, I need to go to Louisiana, uh, but I got a warrant out. And she just looked at me. All right, go. All right. So I'm cool. So anyway, I, I, I get on a plane high on drugs, but I didn't bring any with me. And I, I get to Louisiana and I had, I had a hard time detoxing. I'm running. It just was, it was very hard on so many drugs. And I remember it was a Sunday morning. I walked into a church and I remember thinking, if God, I, I believe you can, you can help me. At least I hope you can. Here it is the last chance. Mm -hmm. I don't know what else to do. So I'm, I was in church. I was dope sick. So I'm feeling bad. And the preacher's walking back and forth preaching. He stops. He says, wow. Hey, somebody right now in this section right <laughs> here is not feeling good. I could feel it. He points me out and he said, you come here, whether he saw I was sick or not, I, I don't know, but he, he calls me to the front and he explains to me about what being born again means and giving Jesus my life. And I, and I, and I said the prayer and I felt electricity run up and down my body. And when I got up, my detox was gone. One thing that sticks out to me about all of the story that you just told every encounter that you talked about is you kept getting back up and you kept going back to the filth and the junk that you had just saw yourself like, okay, I could get away from this, but that wasn't the end of the story. God kept pursuing you again and again and again. And so after that day in church where you finally said, okay, God, this is it. I, like, I don't know what else to do. How did you see things start to change then? Did you finally make the stand and turn your life around? Was it just you? Did you have to get outside help? What changed in that moment? Of course, changing locations always key. What, what happened with me is, I mean, my detox was gone that day. I mean, it was like, now I still had my mind still had to be renewed. My mind was still kind of messed up. And, and that's another story. But like, I was, I was pretty much fried. Uh, but I remember reading a scripture that says that uh, the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. And I just read my Bible so much. And I, I would read and pray for 12 hours a day. Like, I'm not exaggerating. Like, my sister would be like, man, that's all you do. And it, so that's all I had to do it, though. I was so out there that I would just read and pray. But I didn't have to go to rehab because I, at that moment when I got saved, I worked for the pastor. And he was, he, he was pretty intense. So it was, it was like its own. And I mean, I, he, I had a company vehicle. Everywhere, everywhere I went, I had somebody around me. I had my own vehicle. So I had, I had a structure there and guidelines around me to keep me from doing it. What really changed in my life is if anybody knows people who deal with addiction, there's a lot of shame there. You know, I'm not enough. You know, it's the feeling of I'm not enough. I, and you, you just carry that around. So I had that. And I can remember my, my pastor would say, I got a plan for you. I'm like, yeah, I hope so. It was probably, I would say, two to three months after I got saved. And I always said, what's funny is I always said I wouldn't live to be 25 years old. I just I just knew it. And I got I got saved and actually died to self a day before 25. So, wow. yeah. So anyway, about 
a few months after I got saved, I'm at a conference. They give an altar call and they're like, hey, some of you just need to give Jesus everything. A full yes, all the way in. Like, don't hold nothing back. I remember thinking, you know what? I'm going to do that, God, because nobody wants my life. What, I'm gonna, what am I going to do? So I remember going to the altar and I just laid on the altar. Uh, and I remember getting up and I remember thinking, like, I left myself down there. Just a random thought, you know? So we're out of town and I go to the hotel room that night. And as I'm uh, going to sleep, all of a sudden, it happens again. The walls bust out of my hotel room. And we're sitting, like, uh, crisscross, like, as far as I could see, there's there's people in suits in one line, as far as I could see both ways. I knew instinctively that they were preachers and I was in my regular clothes and I looked up in front of me and I, I see Jesus standing in front of me in the robe. You know, now it's, I couldn't make out his face. It was light shining so bright, but you knew who it was. And his finger came out from the light and pointed at me and said, you, you preach. Wow. And I said, no, I mean, like, no. <laughs> I've already told him I do it every once. I just wasn't expecting that. And when I woke up the next day, it was on. I was hitting the streets. I was, if you told me there was a dangerous part of town, I was going there. And so uh, I started prison ministry there and uh, after that point. So, uh, and just been going ever since. And it, I needed that living a lifestyle of addiction. Like I did, I needed that, that affirmation that I can be used again, that I could be used period. I've messed up so much. The guilt and the shame, the, the condemnation would just piled on me. And when he told me that, uh, I mean, I still go back to that, you know? Because there are times in our lives where condemnation still tries to creep on us. And I remember like, no, you called me, not because I'm good, because you're good. You said something really good at the beginning that I feel like kind of inserts itself here. And that was that because you didn't have a dad, you had a question mark just written kind of on your heart. As you started to walk in this way, as you felt called by God directly to you, not just, oh, I think I want to preach. I think I want to use, use my life to honor God, but you felt called by him and you were able to put away that shame. You were able to put away those things. How did that question mark start to change? How did your identity begin to develop in a way that there wasn't so much a question mark anymore, but you were able to step fully into the purpose that he had called you to? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I believe that Father shapes three things, protection, that three purposes really, and it could be more, protection, provision, identity. There's something about the affirmation of a father, and you've seen, you have kids where you could be in the stands, good job, good job, and they're like, all right, mom, but let dad say it, Yeah. and something happens there, like, and that's why the father gave Jesus the affirmation, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What happens with that, and not to preach a sermon, nothing, what happens with that is that the enemy comes for our, our identity. You know, it's what he comes for. So when the enemy came to Jesus, the very next chapter, he left out beloved. He said, if you are the son of God, perform for it. So I, I, I spent a season in still in performance. My first probably five years of Christianity, although I knew he called me, I was still trying to perform for him. I was still trying to perform for love and not from love because I didn't fully know that I was loved yet. And that was a process to come out of. I mean, it took, took me years to come out of. So as he began to love me, I mean, it was so hard for me to receive the love of God. I mean, I would be in praise and worship. I'd shout, I would scream, I would do all them things, you know, like, like the prophets of Baal would do. They would cut their self. They would do all these things to perform, to get their God to, to answer. And, 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 and that's, that's performance. But Jesus said, hey, you only use all them words. You think you heard because of the many words, but your father knows. So I had to go in a season where father loved me. He would make me just sit, not say a word, and his love would come and just fill my heart. And I would, I would like to say that I fully got it, but there's still seasons where I'll go back to performance. And he has to answer that question more. Because especially in men, we always have the question, are we enough? Do we measure up? And so they got a whole generation right now, fatherless kids who have this question mark. 
and, and that no father's there to answer. So they're looking for identity, whether they're looking to rappers, whether they're looking to, to athletes, whether they're looking, they don't know their identity. So the world's giving them a false identity. With me, what happened? Because my father wasn't there to do it. Father God had to come in and father me and answer those questions. And yes, it, it made a huge difference. So in that discovering of who you were and discovering your purpose and feeling called by God, you went on not just to preach, you know, here and there where you could, but to actually immerse yourself in some ministry and do great things for the kingdom of God, to use your story in a way that has been hugely impactful to people around you. So talk to me a little bit about what you've been able to do ministry wise um, that is just constantly allowing God to use this story of transformation in a positive way. Absolutely. So pretty much right after I got saved, I jumped in ministry. So I was preaching at my church. Then I was doing prison ministry, uh, hitting the streets, doing all kinds of stuff. Uh, then I started traveling overseas where I've been to, I don't know, 12 nations preaching uh, right before COVID. Like 2019, I was in Scotland, Israel, Madagascar, Nepal, just going out and just preaching. Uh, and then me and my sister, probably about 2013, started something called the Gate Community Outreach, inner city, inner city missions. And so that's pretty much what I, what I focus on now. I mean, the Lord just, he birthed it in my heart. I, I, a lot, a lot of I do now is actually with kids, which is weird. You know, I love kids, but it's hard for me to, I don't relate to, I, I preach when I preach, it's kind of deeper. And I now I have to break it down for kids, but I was bringing a kid home a few years ago and I, they get out the car and a lot of, a lot of what happens is, especially with singer, single mothers is that they have so much on their plate that they, they're just aggravated all the time. You're not their fault. It's just, and so the kid got out the car and the mom just cursed him out. Just, yeah, it was rough. So, I mean, it kind of broke me a little bit. But anyway, I was at a conference. They gave an altar call again and I go to the altar and all of a sudden the Lord replayed that in my mind. Like, look, the kid getting out of the car, the mom just cursing at her, you know, and the Lord replayed that. And it broke my heart and the Lord just spoke simple words to me. He says, I need you there. I need you there. So what, what I do now is that, for instance, we go into the worst part in our city. We go in. Uh, and just minister to the kids, to the adults. I mean, I, it's to the place where uh, if one of the mothers go, like a mother went to jail. So I took her five kids and lived with me. Wow. <laughs> and so discipleship is dirty. It's messy. Before it was easy. All I did have to do was preach sermons. And but people's lives aren't really always changed from sermons. Very seldom they're changed from community and giving of your life. And so I'm in, a, I'm in a, we're in a season right now. It's like, it's dirty. You know, it looks more practical than it does spiritual, but I realize now practical is spiritual. And so a lot of life skills that we give and just going in and, and we, we have a team now, we're able to go in and, and minister to the kids. And I'm where I'm at right now, just, I'm gonna give my life for this, you know, because they need, they need affirmation of a father. A lot of them say, man, you more, you, you, you more my dad than my own dad. And what's, and, and it breaks the color barrier because all these kids tell me they're black and I'm white. But they they know what love is. And so that's that's really what's on my heart. Just how can I get and it's sometimes it's aggravating because they'll call you all the time. Come do this, come do that. Can you pick me up? Can you oh, I'm like, oh, but it's so worth it, you know? And, and I go back to this. You've probably heard saw on Facebook, it says, well done, good and faithful. And it got like pastor net crossed out and evangelist crossed out, which and it's all the way down. Well done, well done, good and faithful servant. So my, my greatest prayer today is like, how can I just be a better servant? I think we all could learn from that because you said it best when you said a moment ago that discipleship is dirty, it's messy, it's hard to avail yourself to be called at all hours of the night. It's hard to um, kind of get out of your comfort zone and allow people into your space that is maybe neat and well-kept. And, you know, I'm not talking from a literal standpoint, but 
my world is not rocked. And then this coming in is going to rock my world. And so what have you seen in the difference of these kids? Because I can imagine that, you know, as you talked about having that question mark, as you talked about the absence of that father, even though you're not their dad, having that male influence in their lives that is steady and constant, I would imagine that that has made a huge difference in them. So where are these kids going from here that you can see the difference in their lives? Now, a lot of this, uh, what I'm really doing pouring into these kids are just been a couple of years now. So we'll see. Right. <laughs> so, right. But yes. And, and but it, but it's just so important. Mas- I believe that masculinity bestows masculinity. You know what I mean? And so that's why I'm in there and I'm and I'm believing for other males to come alongside and, and get in there. And like you said, it, it is dirty. I mean, I could tell already that kids are getting better and better and better. And I'll take a group of them. I'll pick them up and bring them to church. And when they first start coming, it's unruly. But as they come, you know what I mean? And we're pouring in and loving all of a sudden, six months down the road, they're not making the same mistakes they're making anymore. You know, like I go back to a lot, a lot of what I deal with is single mothers. You know what I mean? And so I even I'll go in if I got a single mother, I'll go in when they get off the bus. I'll I'll, I'll be there. I help them do homework. I'll help clean the house. <laughs> So I'll give you an example. One family that I was helping and still helping now, they would tell me, hey, we got rats running all, all over us at night. So I go buy a bunch of rat traps and put them there. Within two nights, we've got 32 rats. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And so it's just that's what they're used to. That's what they're living in. And so but, it, but it's very it's very hands on, you know, but it, it, it does and will make a difference. And another thing that we're looking to do is they got a, they got a ministry out of uh, Shreveport. It's called Community Renewal. What they do, they'll go into the uh, like the worst neighborhood, they'll buy a house, redo it, and, and, and bring a missionary in there. And everywhere that they do this, crime drops by 50%. Wow. And a statistic by the police department, crime drops by 50%. And so to me now, the we all have different callings, but now it's time, okay, the light has to go among the darkness. And not just go in and leave, but live there and be salt and light and pastor the community who's not going to church. So that's kind of what me and Megan are, are, are into. Now, she's in the schools, too. She goes in with the Good News Club and preach at the school. So we're just, how do we love our city well? You know what I mean? With no agenda. We just want to love. Right. And I think that presence is really what breeds transformation, you know, because you're not just going in and preaching a sermon and being on your way, but the practicality of, no, I'm going to clean your house. I'm going to go and buy rat traps so that you don't have to sleep like that. I mean, that is huge and something that I think a lot of people are not willing to do. And so I do believe that that matters. And I do believe that you guys are going to see true transformation in that because the willingness for people to step out and do those kinds of things is unfortunately very minimal, which is sad because I feel like that's what God has called us to do is simply to love people well. Absolutely. No, totally agree. I heard it said like this one time that a lot of, a lot of people don't, a lot of people don't trust Christians because we, we have a motive. If you, if you, he said, if you go to a car salesman, he might be the nicest person ever, but you always know there's an agenda. And so as Christians, we've done that. Our agenda is to get them to church or get them to say a prayer with me or these things. Although I want everybody to go to church. I want everybody to get saved. My agenda is not to, not to do these things, to manipulate them into going. If it's not a motive, motiveless love, I don't believe it's the love of God. I mean, one lady told me, it was probably a few months ago. She says, hey, she said, man, my son tried to go to church with somebody else the other day. I'm like, well, that's fine. She, he can't. He said, no, he comes out of here with candy and try to just give him candy. So they go to church. Said, I, I, I can't recognize games, she said. She's like, but I, she, no, you're going with Dustin. I know he loves you. You know, it, it, they sense it. They know it. And, and love never fails, man, you know. But it goes back to what you said. 
I think all of us, every born again believer wants to follow Jesus, but I don't believe we know how to do it. it, it, it and so Jesus, he talks about it in, in Matthew, I think it's 16, 24, the steps to following him. First, deny yourself, pick up your cross, then follow. And in America, a lot of times we're trying to follow Jesus without the first two steps of denying ourselves and picking up our cross. I went, I went through season, and I'm sure you have too, denying myself. It's not what I want. It's not what I want. It's what you want. Picking up that cross, like, okay, whatever you want me to do is what I'm going to do. Like, for instance, you're starting a podcast. You probably was uncomfortable at first. Like, oh, God, why well, have to do this? He's like, because I want you to. So you pick up a cross. You know, you write a book, whatever. All our crosses look different. To me, we're at a place now that it's, it's necessary, that we need to be followers of Jesus by doing what? Denying ourselves, picking up our cross, then following him. And so that, that's, what, that's what I want to do. I just want to see our city transform. You know, I, I really do whatever it takes. I'm willing to do it. Well, Dustin, when you look back at your life 20 years ago and the picture that it was back then compared to the picture that it is today, what does that make you feel like? Because you have, I mean, just completely radically allowed God to transform your life. And so what does that mean to you? How does that feel? I cry about that all the time. When, when, I, when I think back, it's impossible where I'm at right now to where I was. You know what I mean? And we say this loosely, but it's it's just... It's him, his grace working in me. And it's just, it's overwhelming. And I constantly go back to it to remember, like, man, look where I was. Look where I was and look where I am now. Constantly every day. I just, you know, I, I just bring myself back to that place of, of surrender that to the cross. Like, Lord, I remember what I was like before this, you know, and it also gives me a deep appreciation for, for the regeneration that happens when you come to Jesus. Like he changed my heart in an instant. <laughs> You know, in one instant, I was one person. In the next instant, I was somebody else. Of course, I still need to renew, renew my mind, but it was just a, I, I just didn't want the things anymore, you know? I never would have thought. <laughs> and I never, I never would have thought or, or wanted to actually be where I am now with G. Because back then, Christians used to scare me. You would scare me. <laughs> I, I don't know why when I be, somebody says, oh, yeah, they're Christians. I would just get all, yeah. it would freak me out for some reason, you know? But, uh. I wouldn't, wouldn't take it back for the world. And I'm so thankful. Well, I'm just so grateful for you sharing your story. A lot of it, honestly, I didn't even know. I didn't realize that things had gotten as bad as they were, but goodness gracious, the incredible power of God and just how wonderful he is and how kind he is to continue to pursue us. I just think that is an incredible testimony to be able to use continually for his power and his glory. So thank you for being vulnerable and sharing. I appreciate it so much. But before you go, I always end with the same question, and that is tell me something good. So in your life right now, something small or something big, what's good? What's good? I tell you, the I'm getting so much pleasure and joy uh, giving my life away for these kids. I wouldn't want to do any, anything else right now. So I'm not saying I'll be the same place five years, but this is where I'm at right now, just the pleasure and the joy. What I love about it for years, I felt like I was loving with my own love, although that's great, good, you know, but now I feel like what happened after that encounter I had where I saw that, I feel like now I'm finally, he's loving through me and it's his love and it just feels amazing. It feels effortless just, just going out. So that, that right now is, is, is the best thing because I'm still single. <laughs> I haven't even had a girlfriend since I got saved, 16 years. So, but that right there is what's giving me tremendous joy. Friend, I am so glad you made it here today. If you love today's conversation and know someone who needs the reminder that it is never too late to turn it around, would you share this episode? 
or take just a few minutes to leave a rating or review. These help tremendously in spreading the word about the show, and I could not be more grateful. Also, if you haven't ordered your copy of my new book, Unraveled, you can grab one today at book.erincusio.com. To know the Dustin I knew in high school and hear the words coming out of his mouth in this conversation, I'll be honest, I wrapped up and then called my husband and said, I'm speechless. I cannot believe that that is the same person I knew in high school. But that's not simply a testament to Dustin. This is a that is a testament to the relentless pursuit of a God who never gives up on us. Even when Dustin knew that God was real and still didn't make a move, God stayed near to him, gently drawing him over and over and over again. Today, Dustin is able to use that patient love of God to reach others in a way that is sending out a ripple effect of goodness out into the world. And he's absolutely right. The way to create lasting change, it's love love with no agenda. The world can sniff out the difference quickly. Maybe it's time to make it our business to find ways to serve and love that might not make sense, but they can make some room for lovely.